Are you looking for a new job? Are you hiring but can't find diverse, talented candidates? Then we have something that can help, our job board. Head on over to revisionpath.com forward slash jobs to browse listings or to place your own. This week on the job board, Flyleaf Creative is looking for a mid-level graphic slash visual designer in New York City. Major League Baseball is looking for a principal product designer in New York City or Boulder, Colorado. Fly.io is looking for a site reliability engineer. This is a remote position. And a small studio is looking for a visual designer. This is a remote position. For just $99, your job listing will be featured on our job board for 30 days and we'll spread the word about it to our diverse audience of listeners. We also offer an annual job board subscription for companies and organizations. Make sure to head over to revisionpath.com forward slash jobs for more info on these listings. Apply today and tell them you heard about the job through Revision Path. Get started with us and expand your job search today. Revisionpath.com forward slash jobs. You're listening to the Revision Path podcast, a weekly showcase of the world's black graphic designers, web designers, and web developers. Through in-depth interviews, you'll learn about their work, their goals, and what inspires them as creative individuals. Here's your host, Maurice Cherry. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Revision Path. Thank you so much for tuning in. I'm your host, Maurice Cherry. And before we get into this week's interview, I want to take some time out and thank our accessibility sponsor for this episode, Brevity & Wit. Brevity and Wit is a strategy and design firm committed to designing a more inclusive and equitable world. They accomplish this through graphic design, presentations, and workshops around IDEA, inclusion, diversity, equity, and accessibility. If you're curious to learn how to combine a passion for IDEA with design, check them out at brevityandwit.com. Brevity and Wit, creative excellence without the grind. Now for this week's interview. I'm talking with Maxwell Van Hook, an Associate Creative Director at Amazon in Seattle, Washington, and the co-host of Designing While Black. Let's start the show. All right, so tell us who you are and what you do. I am Maxwell Van Hook. I am from Baltimore, Maryland. Currently, in my professional life, I am an Associate Creative Director on the Amazon Devices team. So that basically entails anything that has Alexa in it, but it also involves the devices that Amazon makes. So you can think about your Echo Dots, Echo Shows, Kindles, emerging platforms like Amazon Luna, which is cloud gaming. Outside of my professional life, I am a music lover. I'm also the co-host of Designing While Black, along with Becca Markham. So that sort of comprises who I am. First and foremost, I would say with all of those things, I I like to show up as a friend. So I'm just a friend support system and a champion of other people's dreams. I like to see people succeed. I like to see people win. How's the year been going so far? The year's been good. I'm not going to lie to you. When COVID hit, I think that I had some psychological and uh, and emotional barriers, you know, just in terms of shifting my schedule. Mm -hmm. So I had a routine. I would get up every day, probably around 6, 37 o'clock. Uh, do whatever I need to do for the morning, get dressed, go to work, probably get coffee when I went to work, 
And so it gets kind of monotonous. And all of that broke down once COVID hit. And so now I'm at home. Um, now I'm with my wife and I'm with my cat. And nobody's really going outside. And so I had to create new routines for myself. I had to, you know, learn how to work out within my home. I learned had to learn how to run within my home. I had to learn how to make sure that I was keeping my mind active, you know, outside of my day-to-day work. And I also need to figure out how to keep myself emotionally and mentally stable. And so it's been good because I learned a lot about myself. Um, Mm -hmm. I really had to scrutinize what I wanted from life and it allowed me to be still. So I, I know that there were a lot of things that came along with the pandemic, but now that I am, we're somewhat out of it. I actually appreciate it because it allowed me to sit with myself and really be introspective about how I wanted to move forward in this, this next phase of life. Like I just turned 31, not too long ago. And so I, I feel like I'm at a, a crossroads in, in terms of who I want to be. And so yeah. th- this has been good for me. Yeah. I, I think a lot of people now, especially here in the States who have, hopefully gotten their vaccines or or they're seeing now that just restrictions are being lifted like nationwide and in many places. I think a lot of people are at that point of kind of reexamining and reevaluating where they're at now that they've come out of this and trying to figure out what moving forward looks like. Cause I think there's been this big push to get back to normal. We got to get back to normal, but it's almost impossible in many ways because the world is just a different place. We're different people now that we have all collectively went through this extended trauma. You know, it's it's hard mm-hmm. to just kind of snap back into what you used to do before all of this. No, it was important for me. I realized, especially like on the work front, there's certain conditioning that, that you go through in terms of like how you show up mm-hmm. that especially in physical spaces, like when you work into a walk into a corporate office and you're not the dominant culture. And so things like code switching, dialect altering. Uh, I was with not too long ago, we had someone that we interviewed and they used the phrase telephone voice. And these are things that I feel black and brown people use every day to survive in these spaces. And I just had to do like a deep conditioning because when I was at home, I was like way more relaxed. And then I realized that I'm not in the physical space with you. And I'm not going to become someone different when I'm outside of my home. And so I like I had a conflict with myself, like internal conflict. This is the space where I am authentically myself. This is the space where I can be free and open. And now I'm bringing work into that space. And so I like, no, I flipped that on its head. Anywhere that I show up, like that's how I'm going to be. And so like working at home actually allowed me to do that, you know, getting on the phone and not really caring, you know, how I'm phrasing things, not really caring um, what type of vernacular I'll use uh-huh. um, because I was just embracing fully who I am, um, especially when you you put it in the context of like the pandemic, you realize, hey, life can be snatched at any moment. It's up to us to like kind of live um, yeah. and use your agency to like own your life. So that's interesting. You're kind of like reevaluating. It's funny. Well, not funny, but I like that you said that you're kind of looking at home and how you bring work into it. Cause certainly for a lot of folks, you know, having to work from home, it's been tough. I think for many people to really make that delineation between like, this is work. This is home. Like, even if you've got a dedicated space, 
you're still bringing a totally, you know, kind of foreign thing into your sanctuary. You know, home is where you, mm-hmm. that's where you sleep. That's where you let your hair down. That's where you let your defenses down. And, but now it's also your workplace and your gym and your daycare and like all these yeah. other things now. So, yeah. Yeah. All those things kind of converged. And when they, when they converged in that manner, I just started to look at how I was showing up. And then also like how I was relating to people. I think you discover things about yourself throughout life because I believe that we're fluid beings in that way. And just being able to to sit at home, knowing that like this is my space and I own it. Like I couldn't even access any form of like code switching or like altering if I if I wanted to, because it just wouldn't sit right with me. And that just ultimately led me to say like, why was I doing it in the first place? Like, also, who told me to do this? Right. <laughs> that was another thing. Like, who told me to do this? And it's like, no one told me to do this. Like, this is a decision you made and you have to break and work to get out of this. And so if there is a danger in not code switching, that's just something that I'm going to have to deal with. But I would rather live my truth. And I, I feel like most people should, like, live their truth in that sense. Like, there's there's so many people who stay away from like their unique sensibilities or their unique form of expression because of how other people will perceive it. And that stops you from that expansion. And like, that's the goal. Like I'm trying to expand. I'm trying to try as many things as I possibly can. And, you know, with curiosity comes, you know, failure sometimes. And I don't even look at failure as failure. Like I look at that as a lesson, a learning lesson. So I want to fall as many times as I can. I want to show up in in any form that I want to show up in. Yeah, I just want to own my space. Yeah. So I'm trying to walk away from conditioning that may have happened beforehand. Does Amazon foster that kind of like exploration for you as an employee? I wouldn't say if like Amazon, I don't necessarily know if Amazon fosters it, but I will say that when I came to Amazon, I was met with like some very real confrontational energy in terms of the people that I was interacting with. And I I know there are like horror stories about Amazon. Uh, I do not believe that the majority of them are true, just like not in in my case, but there was sort of this, this presence of trying to be a type, trying to be the best, um, trying to always be on. And for me, there was the double whammy of walking into a social environment inside the building where nobody looked at like me. And then also outside of the building, nobody looked like me. And so I don't necessarily know if there was a support system there. I, I'd argue that there, there wasn't, and they're trying to build it now to foster that individuality and that freedom of expression. But it forced me to build my own. Oh. And so in that, in that way, I would appreciate the experience of coming to Amazon, being able to live in Seattle, because it put me directly in line and maybe come face to face with who I am as a person, as a designer, especially as a man. And so it kind of was like a forcing function. If I was like half stepping in, in who I wanted to be and how I wanted to show up, I couldn't really do that there. And so there were a lot of things that I just started to think about differently life-wise once I started working about working at Amazon, more specifically like my wellness, like self-care. I didn't even get a therapist until I I came to Amazon, uh-huh. which is odd. It's super odd. That shouldn't have been the case. I probably should have always 
had a, a sense of reflection or, or someone to kind of help me process. Mm-hmm. But that stuff did not happen until I came came to Seattle. Interesting. We'll talk about kind of what, you know, brought you to Seattle and everything later. But I want to focus now on the work that you're doing at Amazon. You said you're an associate creative director when you're working on Amazon products, devices, I should say, mm-hmm. Amazon devices. And Amazon's been in the device game for a minute. I mean, I think everyone knows about the Kindle, but now there's Echo, like you mentioned. There's like the Fire TV. There's the Fire Tablet. And Amazon has also like acquired other electronics companies. And so there's wearables. There's the Ring security system, all this sort of stuff. So there's a lot that goes into devices at Amazon, just like as broad as you can. can. And if you want to go into specifics, that's fine. What are some creative considerations that you have to think about when it comes to Amazon devices? Because you're really working with like an entire like ecosystem of of tech here. Yeah, I would say at the center, there's a leadership principle called uh, customer obsession. Really, without getting into too much jargon, essentially, kind of at the epicenter of, of any Amazon product or an, any Amazon device is this human focus, this human lens. So always creating product and always creating innovation with your audience in mind. And so anytime that I am getting ready to create a campaign or I'm getting ready to market a product, I always think about the audience that I'm trying to serve. Because if I'm not thinking about that, then you know I'm, I'm probably being a, a terrible designer. And so I would say that one, it's that audience, but then also balancing that, you know, as you go through and you're innovating from device to, to device, realizing how these technologies may create tension points. You want to look at like Echo Dot, for instance, the way that it functions is, you know, it very much so, you know, has to record, right? And so it's like constantly listening. It's pinging to see if it's being called every so often. And that's why when you say the key phrase Alexa, it'll activate. And so, like, how do I humanize technology like that? How do I humanize emerging technology to show people like, hey, this is new, this is novel, but it can fit within your day-to-day lifestyle and it can be a benefit to you. And so, like, that's how I think about marketing any product with Amazon. What is the human entry point? What is the human lens? Like, how does this product help serve the customer base? And how does it help enhance their lifestyle? I worked on a product, um, a service within the Alexa app not too long ago, which is probably one of my proudest projects. It's called Alexa Care. Mm -hmm. And essentially, it's for the more senior, elder loved ones in your life. And it allows people to kind of stay in touch with those loved ones without infringing on their day-to-day lifestyle. So imagine you have a grandmother who's 75, 80 years old. She lives by herself at home and you live, you know, maybe in another country or another state, you know, how do you stay in touch with her? And so those are the types of products. And that's essentially how like we would want any of the Amazon devices to like show up. It needs to be a benefit. It needs to enhance. It needs to be brought into the life of our everyday customer and improve. So if it's not doing that, then 
we probably won't make it. Mm. Now that you mention it, I'm thinking of other kind of Amazon devices. I think these might have been some that were discontinued. I remember at one point there was a, I think one was like a camera or a camera wand or something that went with Amazon wardrobe that would like analyze your outfit. Yeah. And it reminded me of Clueless, like the opening (laughs) scene in Clueless where Cher is like picking out her outfit on the computer and the closet's got the dual like conveyor belt curtains or whatever or the rods or whatever but like thinking about like is that really a benefit do i need to do all of that if i'm getting ready in the morning probably not and i think amazon discontinued it fairly shortly but when you bit when you put it in that way of like the devices need to be a benefit then i see like why amazon has made such a i think deep strides into the home with their devices i mean the echo is something that easily can blend in with your decor. You know, the fire mm-hmm. TV, it sort of sits behind your TV. It's out of sight. The ring, it's literally outside the house. So you don't really even see it, but the benefits that it adds, whether that's security or extensibility or, you know, smart home functionality, stuff like that. It's interesting how all of that still sort of works together under the Amazon brand. Cause now it of course ties into the services. It ties into Alexa. It ties into purchasing or, or whatever that you want to do on the website. Yeah, it's really important to like look at the ecosystem of devices that we have. And I don't even think there's a lot of things that Amazon tries. I would say year over year, we've like increased our device output like tenfold. I expect it to continue to grow and grow. Really, I think the goal is to provide through Alexa a service that can be personalized to the end user. Right. And can function, you know, in a way that benefits them specifically. So I imagine a world and these are not conversations that I've had with with anyone um, in terms of how Alexa functions. But I imagine a world where like there are no devices and, you know, potentially Alexa is integrated into the home itself. Hmm. Right. You know, like I could imagine like seeing a tiny home it could start off there and like it could just have Alexa integrated into it. and like you don't need to have these like one-off devices in order to to have it function imagine it already being built into the smart appliances imagine it already being able to interface with your computer you don't need to kind of have a suite of devices that ties into the internet of things in order to function efficiently that's why i think it's going um, with nose ais I think the overall goal is to to arrive there and the devices is just to kind of open up new spaces and open up how customers relate to yeah. the voice assistants. Yeah, because I imagine you get a ton of data with just seeing how people talk to Alexa, how they interact with the different devices. And then you can use that, of course, to to upgrade the experience. But then, as you said, you can venture off into sort of greater implementations. Like I know there's the Amazon go store, which Mm -hmm. I think started in Seattle. I'm not sure if it's started to spread nationwide yet, but it's like a, it's almost like a personless convenience store. Like you can go in, pick up what you need and walk out. And like, as you're doing this, you're automatically being like rung up, like the things that you're buying are being tabulated. You're charged when you walk out the door and you don't have to interact with a person. You just go in, do what you have to do, walk out. Yeah. I think 
if I'm not mistaken, not too long ago, you probably find this online. They just opened up like a full fledged grocery store here in Washington. Oh, wow. So Yeah. So I'm going to have to to go check that out. Even like that concept. Mm-hmm. It's interesting because it's not like we haven't tried that in history before. Like, yeah. You look at the um, on a smaller scale, like a lot of your grocery stores already have like some form of self-checkout. Uh huh. But like even the, the, like the human psychology behind self-checkout, you look at it realistically, if you were to assess how long it takes you to go into a store, get what you need and then go through the checkout line, mm-hmm. like by yourself, it probably on average takes you a lot longer. Right. Rather than having someone else. But it's the thought. It's the thought that you are going to be a lot faster mm-hmm. than that person who may be checking you out in line, which is interesting. But also, even seeing Amazon try something like this and be relatively successful has a lot to do with studying the human behavior. Yeah. But yeah, that's not the first time in like in human history that we've we tried that before. Oh, no, no, no. Of, yeah, I tried yeah that. no, no. I'm thinking of I'm thinking specifically of the automat which has been around since like mm-hmm. the late 1800s yeah. <laughs> yeah you know so like i mean what amazon is doing at least in if you look at from the automat to the amazon go store is essentially taking that same concept almost treating the store like a vending machine and just having this layer of technology that handles interactions throughout the entire process yeah no it's crazy to see i remember the first time that i actually went into cuz i i work in day 1 and uh, for anyone who doesn't know what day one is, it's it's one of the buildings. I believe it's actually the building that uh, Jeff Bezos is. And so within the verticals and the business orgs that he cares about, like they all exist in that building um, with the exception of like AWS, um, Amazon mm-hmm. Web Services. I remember when I first went into that that store and it was like such a weird thing, especially coming from where I come from, just be able to like use an app walk in and like walk out and I stopped myself and I was like, am I like, really? You know, it's almost like you feel like you're about to steal <laughs> something. Like, am I really like allowed to like walk out with this? Uh-huh. Yeah. But it's kind of interesting. And I, I think as they become more successful with the rollout of these stores, yeah, you're going to see, you're going to see a lot more of it. I can see Amazon coming out with like the Amazon house of tomorrow. <laughs> You know what I mean? It's almost like those old Tex Avery cartoons where you got the all the machines and robots doing stuff. And, and it's so interesting because, like, these are concepts, you know, just this whole thing about home automation, for example. We've been fed that for, like, 50 years now. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, the Flintstones had all those little animals and shit doing stuff for them in mm-hmm. the cave. Like, we've been fed this whole thing about having the house work for us instead of us working in the house for such a long time. And so now you've got, you know, a company like Amazon that's able to really do that through their devices. And I, I mean, other companies have, have gotten on this too, but I feel like Amazon was really one of the first to, to really like do deep penetration into the home, largely because I think it was tied to commerce. Yeah. No, I, I also think it's so interesting to see the exponential growth of technology and like the, the rate of, the rate of change. Yeah. Like, and the rate of innovation in technology. I'm sure that you've like watched Black Mirror. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so I remember like the first season and I was like, oh, like some of the things that are happening in this series 
like the grain, right? The grain where like you can run back all your memories, like that's super far away. And then like season by season, I think I realized by like the third season, I'm like, no, these are things that could happen now. Yeah. And so like I'm looking back because I always feel as though like art imitates life. And I think we seed ideas within the consciousness of, you know, society. And then like some person out there will have the gall or have the genius to make it. And now I think we're at a crossroads where it's like, all right, you put that into the world. I can make that tomorrow. And so, yeah, I think you're a hundred percent right. Like we're going to look probably within the next few years, there will probably be some sort of smart home that will have all this integrated tech. I think we're like at a stage where like that next technological revolution, if it's not already here, like it's, it's getting ready to, to come underway. Even things like, and it's pushing up against our beliefs about identity and like how we, we think about ourselves. Going back to Black Mirror, that episode about like VR and video games. I forget the actors that were in it, but. Is this from the latest season? The Striking yeah, this Vipers? From the latest, yeah, Striking Vipers. Yeah, yeah. That was so interesting to me because it kind of introduced a new topic because that that technology is not far away yeah like it's right around the corner i want to say not to get too graphic but you know there are uh (laughs) streaming websites that people probably should or shouldn't be going to Mm -hmm. uh, that get a lot of data and they invest they have invested and have given seed money to companies who are creating bodysuits that can sense like AR, VR touch points and sort of mimic haptic feelings throughout the body if you're wearing these suits. And so, yeah, like seeing a, a episode like that yeah. and knowing, because I pay attention to like angel investors, I'll pay attention to what people are doing in the market, knowing that there are, are websites who want that technology and are spending money in order to make it happen. Yeah. Means that that conversation may not be that far down the line. (laughs) And that to me is like, it's somewhat terrifying, but it's also really interesting. No, no, I I totally get what you're saying. I mean, actually, I didn't even think you were going to go that way with it. But now that you've mentioned it, I can see that. I was thinking more so about like now how. So a couple of weeks ago, I had this guy on the show, Brandon Gross, and we were talking about the metaverse Mm. and about how there are like, Online personalities, you know, YouTubers, podcasters, et cetera, that have like a virtual kind of real-ish avatar, like a VTuber or something like that. And we're, we're starting to see it like on YouTube, for example, people that have these sort of online-ish identities that are getting some level of fame. There's Dream, there's Corpse Husband, there's probably a few mm-hmm. other folks. And it's like, these are real people. No one knows who they are, what they look like, but they've presented this digital... 3D avatar of themselves and they're able to use that to, I guess, sort of be themselves online in some sort of way. But to go back to what you said with sort of the Black Mirror portion, I do see how that's not too far away at all. Like between augmented reality and things of that nature, it's pretty close. Yeah. Like even kind of what you just said, I, I'd love to kind of unpack that even more because in, in, in a sense, it's like the most ideal version of yourself, right? Yeah. 
And that's that's what I think in a, a real way, because I'm kind of conflicted about like social media and how it's used, but you curate it. Yeah. Right. And a lot of people do not give like this holistic presentation. Like it's not like a direct one to one to your everyday life experiences. So yeah, you just like amplify that. And then now I can actually like physically choose what I look like. Um, <laughs> like if I want to be, you know, part animal, part human, or if I want to be a cyborg, I can do that. Um, and now we're all in ready player one. Yeah. <laughs> so absolutely. No. <laughs> I could imagine that. Yeah. That that'll happen. Uh, yeah. Not too long from now. I, I feel like I'm watching kids now and at least my, I have a godson and he's like constantly in his video games. And if he's not in his video games, he's like watching streamers. Mm-hmm. So I hear you on that one. Yeah. <laughs> Let's kind of switch gears here a little bit. I know we've been talking about your work at Amazon. Uh, one of the other things that you do is that you are a co-host of a show on Instagram called Designing While Black. Tell me about that. Yeah. So I think Becca and I met in my first year at Amazon. And so Becca is my co-host. And what we realized is that internally there were no spaces for designers to kind of like come together, meet, politic, learn from one another, uh, and generally just like have a social bond that, you know, feels like support. And we wanted to change that. And so we got together, I want to say one day, we went to like a mini golf session and we sent out like a blast and we expected like five people to show up. Mm -hmm. I think like over, over 30 people showed up. Oh, wow. And then so now we realize like, oh, there's a community within Seattle that we really, really need to access. So that's where Black Designers of Seattle came from. Just trying to create a space where, you know, Black designers who may feel othered, who may feel like there's no one who sort of shares the same interest or even walks in the same spaces that they that they do. There is, you know, a social circle out there that they can access. And so a lot of the times, like when we were starting to like have these gatherings, we weren't talking about design at all. We were just like having fun. We would yeah. go pick a place we would eat and we would just fellowship. And then we slowly started to shift that and it became a little bit more educational. So we started to bring people in like uh, Tim Allen. I believe you had Tim Allen on your show. Mm-hmm. From um, Airbnb. Yep. Mm-hmm. We brought in Jessica Rochelle. Timothy Bar-Levins. And so we were bringing in these different people who, you know, were really able to like share knowledge, share their experience and uplift the designers within our community. And then we were getting reached out to from like agencies or other bigger tech companies because they wanted to host us in the space. And then the pandemic hit. (laughs) And then things started to to take a bit of a lull. So we um, tried to figure out how to navigate the new world in the new situation that COVID presented to us. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that we thought about was having a Zoom. Uh, but then outside of that Zoom, because we were specifically talking to designers within Seattle, we were really, really interested in being able to reach a larger audience. And within that larger audience, really speak to emerging designers. So people who are either in middle school, high school, college, um, and wanted to walk in the same spaces that that we're currently walking. It's like, how can we reach out to them? 
how can we give them content that can encourage them and allow them to know that there are people out here who look like them and are doing this work? Because I, I firmly believe like if you don't see yourself, then you may not believe it's possible. And so that's where Designing While Black came from. We spent a lot of time thinking about it, scrutinizing it, trying to de design out the materials and, and the brand in a bunch of different ways. And one day, like Becca and I just sat down and we're like, we're just going to do it. Do it. We're going to get up within a week. We're going to bring on, uh, I think our first guest was like Alyssa Johnson. Mm -hmm. And we're just going to keep going every week, short form content, bring in the people that we know and make sure that this gets in the hands of, of the right people. And, and so uplifting those stories and disseminating them to the people that can access those younger folk who want to be creative and want to do design professionally, that's our main goal. And as COVID restrictions start to, to lessen and we get back to peopling again, our, our goal is to get right back into those physical spaces and those physical venues. Mm -hmm. And then maybe we can start to do those shows in a, a more grand way. But that's kind of where it started. I think her and I really, really believe in education and we both stand on the shoulders of the people that came before us. Like I specifically, one of my design mentors was in my church. I mean, I know that that's not like a common story to have a professional graphic designer who can talk to you at like the age of 14, 15 and kind of guide you. But I want to give back to other people what he gave to me. That was the overall goal of just doing the IG live show. What have you learned since starting the series? A one, I've learned that there are some magical black folk out there. <laughs> like, <laughs> like real, like you start to like, you know, you'll sit down with some people and you think that you have a full understanding of everything that they've done. And when you sit down and you have a conversation with them and you really have to like assess and dive deep into their life and their work, you, you start to, to realize like, yo, there are, are black people who are innovators in every single type of design that you could think of. And that's really encouraging to me, especially in the spaces that I travel. But I think the biggest thing is that like, yo, we're killing it out here. We're killing it out here. And, and not just, you know, when it comes to being a, like a director or a VP or an executive, I met a young woman uh, the other day, her, her name was Kiwi. She's currently in school, mm -hmm. but she was like a producer on Masterclass. Oh, okay. And yeah, and she has spent time like producing for films and she just completely shifted and decided that she wanted to become an instructional or she wanted to become not only like an instructional designer, but industrial designer um, more so. That's probably like the most amazing thing, like being able to meet people who have had just so many different types of experiences in life and aren't afraid to try new things. That probably is like the biggest thing that, that I've learned. I do want to ask you, right? Mm -hmm. As you were building out your platform, kind of like what probably is like the biggest roadblock that you faced just in terms of making sure that one, it was reaching the people that you wanted it to reach. Hmm. That's a good question. 
I think it was, it was two things. One was really me sort of trying to get out of my own way. I think I certainly was trying to do, especially early on, a lot of like partnering up with other entities to try to reach an audience that I just didn't have yet. And I should have been spending that time really cultivating the audience that I did have, like the ones that I knew were listening and were, you know, leaving reviews and stuff. Instead, I would try to like talk to another design podcast or another design organization and see if there's ways that we could, you know, work together and do some stuff. And oftentimes the answer to that would be no answer. Like it wouldn't just, it just wouldn't <laughs> go anywhere, even though I'm, I'm reaching out. So I think that's probably been a big roadblock. I mean, I, to be fair, I'd say money is, is like a continual roadblock, but in those early days, there wasn't really a whole lot that I really needed that money for in terms of, I think I wanted to have it as a kind of a status symbol to myself that I've created something that companies will pay me for. And of course I would, you know, use it for operational resources and stuff like that. But I spent way too much time trying to like chase sponsors and chase an audience I didn't have. And I should have been really focusing inward on cultivating the audience I do have and making them really rabid fans of what I'm trying to do that can sort of see the vision that I see. I would have done that. Cause yeah, in those early days, there was, it was, I'll say this, it was certainly not as progressive as it is now. Not by a long shot. I mean, if I, when I was reaching out to people in 2013 and 2014, you know, there was a lot of, you know, oh, we're post-racial. We don't handle, we don't do this sort of stuff anymore, et cetera, blah, 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 mm-hmm. which, you know, then just kind of made it difficult when people sort of ideologically feel that the work that you're doing for some reason is racist and it's not. It's like, oh, well, I don't, I don't see why you would, would think that, but it just wasn't the, the tenor of the design community was not as open and accepting and as I'd loathe to say the word woke, but it was not as woke now as it was back. Like back then people were really closed off to like, no. And now it's a lot more open. I think there's a a greater consideration and a greater perspective for what, you know, black designers are doing and what they can bring to the table and their voices and such. Yeah. I, I want to think back to like, our when I first discovered your, your podcast. And I think for me, especially like I was young, like I was like fresh mm-hmm. in the design game. And so you don't like, you don't see a lot of examples of people who have had like robust careers. Like I probably <laughs> didn't meet too many people outside of like my actual mentor who had like, you know, decades worth of experience in design. And so like being able to access your podcast sort of reassured me that like, not only can I have a, like a long career in this, but I can aspire to do great things. And so, yeah, I just want to like, I, I appreciate sort of the platform that you built in, in that sense, because it does not only like spread knowledge, but it also like reinforces some things identity wise within a young designer to know like, hey, there are people who are out there and there are people who are great and they're killing it. And so, yeah, I was like really, really, really like excited when I when I found the show. I don't even remember how I found it. <laughs> yeah, I can't, I can't even remember how I found it. I may have been like searching online. It, it probably was like Facebook back then. Like, yeah, I would just like check in, listen and kind of use it to build not only like my knowledge of, of self and like what was happening in these different spaces, but also to explore new territories. 
Well, I'm certainly glad that you found it. Like, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's interesting because, you know, I've, I've, like I said, I've been doing this for such a long time. And oftentimes, and I mean, it's probably different with what you're doing with Instagram because you have kind of a live audience. But, you know, with podcasting, a lot of this is pretty solitary. I don't really know how it's being received unless someone leaves a review or they write me an email or they send a tweet or send a, you know, a DM on Instagram. Other than that, I'm just kind of like pushing episodes out into the void and I can see that they're getting listened to and downloaded, but I don't get that direct feedback. And that could just be honestly because of the medium, you know, but yeah, no, I'm glad that you found Revision Path and that it was able to kind of serve as a, as an inspiration for you. Yeah, it's uh, I feel like we should give people flowers and yeah, maybe on the internet. Um, <laughs> we don't do the best job of that, uh, especially when you sort of look at like the vacuum that is Instagram and the, the like system. But I as I live and breathe, I just wanted to let you know that. And I definitely share your podcast with young designers and, and people that I mentor because, you know, I don't want people to think it's just me out here. Mm-hmm. I'm tired of that narrative. I'm tired of the narrative of like being like, oh, I was the only one. I'm the only black designer that I know. I'm the only black designer for 100 miles. Like, it's exhausting. Like, um, <laughs> I don't, I don't subscribe to it. I don't want to hear it anymore. I also want to change the narrative in terms of how people of color relate to design. Yeah, is I tend to think that the way that you think about something has to be vastly different than the way that another person thinks about something and the way that you would build something is going to be vastly different than the way that someone else would build it. I think inherently black people are designers. Even thinking about like systems that were placed on us and how we've navigated around them. We've organized, we have created structures, we have created innovation and, and process to be able to by step, you know, roadblocks that have been placed in front of us. And so I think that like that's a part of your heritage. That's a part of your legacy. I think if you want to be a designer, you can do that. It's it's just a matter of like setting your mind to it. And so I tell people that like all the time, especially younger folk. Like this is a part of your ancestry, bro. Mm-hmm. Like you've been creating long before you were in existence. Like it's in your blood. I mean, don't let anybody tell you that it's not. Yeah. Speaking of ancestry and going back, I want to go back to where you grew up. You're originally from Baltimore, born and raised. Tell me about what it was like growing up there. Did you feel like you got a lot of exposure to like art and design as a kid? Yeah. So my mom, both my parents are like, were like really supportive of the arts. My dad, like he forced me to like take drama classes. Oddly enough, he like came to me one day after school was like, you're signing up for You're a Good Man, Charlie Brown. You have an audition two <laughs> days from now. And then uh, my mom would make sure that during the summers and after school, I was doing some sort of arts and crafts. So Baltimore has this program called Twigs. It's attached to this high school called Baltimore School of the Arts. And so when I would leave my middle school, I would just take a bus there. And so I'm learning like foundational principles of traditional art. And also like from year to year, I'm like switching off. So maybe one year I'm doing more traditional art practices. And then the next year I'm like learning how to act. 
And then that kind of evolved as I started to get a little bit more focused. My mom would take me to Micah. So like even in middle school, I was able to get a lot of exposure to institutions that existed within Baltimore that solely focused on art. And then when I went to City, City is, I'll say it's the best high school that exists within uh, Baltimore, but they have a program called International Baccalaureate. So that allowed me to get a little bit more focused when it came to how I was telling my stories through art. So Mm. I had some teachers who like were just really, really helpful and set the foundation for like how I wanted to express myself. And one day, you know, one of those teachers came up to me and was like, you know that you could, you could do this as a career. I was like, huh. Hmm. I didn't really think about that. This was just something I would do when I was just like chilling or late at night or when I had free time. And so once he expressed that to me, because I was going to go to school for like communications, which would have been really, really bad. But I had made the connection that, you know, what you're probably passionate about, you know, you should follow that. Like mm-hmm. you should figure out how to to do that as much as you can. And so what they saw in me, they really, really like poured into me. And then I like talked to my mentor and he opened up that lens a little bit more and was like, hey, you could go to school for graphic design, but like I see something different happening in the space. And so you're going to need more than one skill like when you graduate from school. He's like, don't do graphic design. He's like, there are programs out there now that will like teach you those principles, but you need to be more in the digital space. So that's how I ended up majoring in like multimedia. And I got like crazy amount of exposure to different things. I want to say we were doing like physical computing. I was messing with like Arduino boards, trying to figure out how I could trigger light within a physical like space, doing like sound production, like messing with like midis, like a bunch of stuff, like video production, pretty much all the different types of design and art forms that you could think of. And I just had like so much freedom. I think out of all the majors in that school, we had like the most electives. It was kind of wonky. I want to say like, Three to four years after I left, they like shut it down. <laughs> oh, no. they, yeah, they just like rolled it into to graphic design. But even that like kind of was indicative of the fact that graphic design as a like major or like as an industry kind of had like changed and we were using like new terms and I had no idea what a user experience designer was, but like also those lines hadn't been defined yet. Right. Mm -hmm. So, um, but to go back to it, like Baltimore, that's my heart and soul. Like, even though I'm in Seattle right now, the goal is to always return back to it. Uh, It's taught me a lot is where I get my grit from. It's where I get my perseverance from. It's the place where I learned to be me. And so me and my wife, we're here in Seattle now, but the goal is always to go back home. Mm. Now, Growing up in Baltimore and everything, and with what you just described, like when did you sort of know that this was something you really wanted to do for a living? Did it did it click at any point growing up? Uh, when did I know that this was something I wanted to do for a living? I this is gonna be odd, but it was probably like my senior year of college. Like, okay, because I wasn't really sure how like viable 
a design career was, I was kind of going like back and forth. And as I was starting to get closer to graduation, I was having some apprehension. It was like, do I just go get a master's degree? Because that's like both of my parents have master's degree and degrees and they're both educators. And Mm -hmm. I just thought that that was the path. And then my senior year, I think I had like a teacher. It's interesting. I had this same, he like led our whole program. I had him like freshman year and he like leaned on me. He's like, you don't understand any of these programs. He's like, you have great vision, but like you can't execute on any of your visions Hmm. because you don't have the technical knowledge. And then I had him again in my senior year and he did the exact same thing, except it was kind of a different message. And he was like, you could be so great. He was like, you could be so, so great. And he was like, just like yelling at me. And I could see like this passion in his eyes. And I'm like seeing all my other classmates and they're walking in with like projects that are like half thought out or like they did like the night before. And he's just like letting them come in and out, come in and out. And what he said to me is like, you're not the same as them. In a good way or a bad way? In the in a good way. In a good okay. way. He's like, that's why I'm he's like, that's why I'm yelling at you. He's like, I can see you doing this for the rest of your life. And, and so that really kind of set you on yeah, that path. Yeah. It set me on that path because like I woke up and was like, Oh, do I need to get a master's degree? Why am I going to get a master's degree? And that like lit a fire like w- within me, because I didn't have that confidence yet. Like there was nothing saying that like I was meant to to do you know design full time there was nothing saying that I was going to work at under armor there's nothing saying that I was going to be you know where I am now and, and that, that teacher yeah it like came full circle like first year lit, lit a fires like yo you got to learn these programs mm-hmm. and then it was like my last year I, I still remember this man his name's Chris Garvin yeah just like leaned on like would like just yelled at me and would not do it to anyone else at all but i think i saw him maybe like five or six years after that because my brother my brother ended up going to that school and i thanked him i thanked him because there's a level of care right like you need people you need a support system of like people who are going to hold you accountable but also people who see you as greater than what you see yourself as that was important for me but like yeah that's when the switch turned that's Mm -hmm. when it turned and i was like oh i can do this i can do this i can see myself as a designer professionally. Yeah. And speaking of which, right after you graduated, you ended up working at Under Armour and you stayed there for what, six years pretty much? Yeah. Even getting that job was, that's an interesting story. So I want to say I was like up late at night, one Saturday, like evening, probably like Sunday morning, like around like 12 o'clock in the morning. I'm on Craigslist. (laughs) <laughs> so I'm just like applying for anything. Like I have my busboy job. Uh-huh. I'm like, I got to pay off these loans quick as possible. I'm working as many shifts as I can. I'm not trying to live in my parents' house forever. And so I'm like, come across this uh, ad that says, oh, we have a contract position for a designer working with a sports organization within Baltimore. I'm like, eh. like what could that be? <laughs> I was like, could it be the Orioles? Probably not. Could be the Baltimore Blast. I don't know. I was like, it's not going to be Under Armour. Like, they would just have it posted on their like site. Mm-hmm. 
got a call probably, I'm in like church, got a call around like nine o'clock. Someone leaves a voicemail. It's like, hey, we want you to come in tomorrow, take a test. Still don't know what it is. Go in, fail the test. Oh. (laughs) Yeah, fail the test. There's an old version of Photoshop that I've never used before. Oh, no. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. yeah. So like completely different setup. I think around around that time was like CS3. They had like, it might be like CS1 or or something like that. And they still send me in. Hmm. They send me in. I'm met at the door. I have at this point in time, like my parents are telling me like, no, the only way you get the job, dress up, suit and tie, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. <laughs> Walk in. I have that that suit and tie. I have a suitcase on. I have a suitcase, Maurice. I have a suitcase. I put my portfolio out of a suitcase. Wow. <laughs> yeah. And this woman, she comes and she gets me. And the first thing that she says to me, she's like, don't worry, you got this. The person interviewing me is comes like, you got this. I don't know what she saw in me. She was like, you like you got this. This is yours. And this is as someone else is walking out. So I know that they're interviewing other people. But yeah, I end up getting the job. I like walk away from that interview. By the time I catch the boat back across the harbor mm-hmm. in order to go home, I get a call saying, hey, they want to bring you in. And what started as a contract position evolved into a, a six-year career with Under Armour. And they were a fledgling team. I worked on the e-commerce team there, really supportive people. And it was a blessing because I got a lot of experience that typically contractors don't get. I was able to work in their custom CMS and I got to see how you grow a business, how you grow a platform. Uh, We essentially went from like just supporting UA.com to looking at like the whole digital consumer journey. It was like UA.com. And then now all of a sudden it's emails. It's a uh, social paid and organic. It's apps. I'm looking even at uh, designing for touchscreens within retail stores. And I was only like 23 years old. Like, <laughs> and then and then we we go from there. And then all of a sudden it's like, hey, we got all these different channels that we need to market in now. Like the brand team can't support all of these. You all need to figure out how to extend these stories. That's when the art direction experience comes in. And so like now I'm in studio and I'm I'm internalizing these products and figuring out how to craft stories and narratives around them that are compelling and not only tell like the technology story, but then also sort of give that emotional and like aspirational sort of lens to the the product. And so like I'm started off in studio and that was a really good experience. And then now all of a sudden it's like, hey, can you go on location? Like, can you scout places? Um, can you work with athletes? Can you put them through training regiments? I got a lot of like crazy experiences from that. Like I got to meet Steph Curry from while I was working at Under Armour. Um, and I got to work with him like mm. on set. And so like that was that was key for me. Like I I wouldn't trade that experience for for anything because that's where I learned how to, you know, really fly and like really be a leader. And they allowed me to pitch ideas. Now they didn't accept all my ideas, but they allowed me to like take chances there. Mm-hmm. And I really appreciated that. And no matter, you know, how many times things may have not gone perfectly, they always gave me another chance to kind of push my ideas. 
And that also gave me a lot of confidence. I probably wouldn't do what I do now if I hadn't worked there and, and worked around the people that I worked around. There was a lot of like black leadership. When I was there, there was a lot of black leadership at Under oh. Armour. Like Adrian Lofton, she was a black CMO. Mm-hmm. Julian Duncan, he now works with the Jacksonville Jaguars as a CMO, but he was a director. Uh, Thomas Harden, Ernie Talbert, he like works here at, at Amazon with me. Ty Foster, like these were the people giving me the opportunities. Like these are all black people. Mm-hmm. Like that, that matters. And um, looking back on it, that was a blessing for me. That was really, really key because I would say that the majority of designers who enter into a professional workplace don't get that level of support. No, absolutely not. I mean, you know, I've had a number of folks are on the show and like, you know, there are some that will go into agencies and agencies may have some kind of a apprenticeship type setup or something like that. But, but it's rare to go into a real corporate design space. Like I'm sure Under Armour was and still feel that not just that supported, but then also to have that many black creatives around you supporting you as well. Mm-hmm. And like opening up the budget for you to like fully realize your idea and it wasn't until I left Under Armour that I realized how special <laughs> that environment was. And uh, mm-hmm. kind of like when we were talking about like, yeah, I hold that near and dear to my heart because I realized that that's not the case for everyone. And I, yeah, I, tra- I cherish that moment. I still have relationships with those those people now. See, I was going to ask what prompted you to move out to the West Coast because you went to school at the University of Arts in Philly. And it sounds like this opportunity was it. Like this was the reason you moved out there. Yeah. I had always wanted to live on the West Coast. Uh-huh. Nothing against Baltimore. Like Baltimore is always will be my home. Um, and I love it, like I said earlier. But I feel like when you put yourself in new spaces, that's when you learn new things about yourself. And so I like being uncomfortable because I firmly believe that it leads to to expansion. And so a part of going to the West Coast was, you know, about not falling into this this sense of like comfort and um, familiarity with my environment. I just knew I got to a point probably when I was like around 26 where I was like, this feels amazing. I feel like I know everything. I'm starting to feel like at work. I don't have to try as hard. I don't have to exert myself as much. Mm -hmm. And that's when I knew I had to go. I was like, I made a plan. I was like, I have to go because if I stay here, there's the potential that I I plateau. And so like I set up a plan for myself. West Coast was the the ultimate goal, but I like tiered it out. It was like getting to California, number one. Number two, we like we stay at Under Armour and then we go to Amsterdam. I lined that up. Number three was going to be like even moving to Virginia. Hmm. Yeah, because I was just like, I need to have some new experiences. So that's really what what drove it. Having new experiences, being in new environments and living in Philly gave me like a little bit of a taste. But also both of my parents are from Pennsylvania. My dad is from North Philly. So then like Philly was like a second home to me. Mm-hmm. And so even though I was away, like I wasn't ever really away. Yeah. I wanted that experience. I wanted that moment. That's ultimately like it landed me in the Bay with uh, Athleta, which is a part of Gap. 
but yeah, I, I didn't even stay. I loved Athleta. Like they mm-hmm. had a wonderful environment, completely different than Under Armour. They were like way more focused on empowering women. And then also it was more so from like a wellness lens. But then I got that opportunity with with Amazon. Once again, it was someone who like believed in me. So much so that a position that I did not even apply for, they wanted me to come and work with them. And so I got a call from, he's not my hiring manager anymore, but I got a call from a man named Kay Tran, a Vietnamese man. And he's like, I know that you exist as a, like a designer right now, but I think that you could be way bigger than that. So it's like a constant, like sort of theme within the experiences and the interactions that I'm having. He's like, I think you can be an art director. He's like, I think you can lead these projects. Mm-hmm. I know that you have no experience in tech, but I'll support you and I'll work. I'll work with you. And he held true to that. He held true to that. I owe a lot of my my success here to the support that he provided me initially at Amazon. And that also, you know, set the foundation for, you know, me wanting to create the spaces with Becca that that we've created so far. But yeah, and he reached out to me, called me, uh, told me to come up here, gave me the lowdown on how it would be. <laughs> like I remember the one of the first calls that we had, he was like, I used to live in the Bay. It's like Seattle is not the bay at all. <laughs> so be prepared for that. I think it's it's worked out for me. It's yeah. worked out for me, for sure. It certainly sounds like it has. I can tell. When you look back at your career and you've you've dropped a few names throughout this interview, but who are some of the people that have like inspired you? Like any any mentors or colleagues? Yeah. So first and foremost, one of the people that inspires me the the most, I'm gonna go to like my first mentor, that's Sean Cunningham, the man that I met at my church, a professional graphic designer of over 20 years. He uh, worked in agency life and he really, really took me aside and he would spend time with me, you know, on Sundays, on the weekends, like showing me how you craft a portfolio. Because I think a, a lot of times, you know, kids can think that they're putting their work together, right? And they have a bunch of like pretty pictures, but they don't have any story behind it. Like there may not be any depth. Mm-hmm. And me having access to him, he started to like mold me and and shape me and pull back the curtain. He was one of the people that like really like blocked down Phil for me. Cause if he wouldn't have spent that time with me, who knows if I'm in the same space that I'm in. Um, so Sean Cunningham would definitely be a really, really big one for me. In terms of other mentors, I'm, I'm definitely going to have to give my parents are really, really keen mm-hmm. and influential in my life. And so a lot of the principles that I have, I do think that this relates to the design as well. My parents are extremely empathetic and I don't believe that you can be a good designer if you do not have empathy, uh, if you are just out here, you know, making decisions and, and building products and, um, you know, doing work solely because you think it looks good or solely because you think you're making the right decision and you're not considering the people that you are doing it for, then it's all for not. And so one of the sayings that exists within my church 
is it's all about relationship or it ain't about nothing. And my parents are the embodiment of that. And so they pass that empathy along to me. And that's how I like to show up, not just in the how I think about my work, but also how I relate to people. Those would probably be like my key mentors. Of course, like all the people that I currently fellowship with now, even though Becca and I are like relatively like the same age, I think being in contact with with her has been a form of mentorship for me. John as well. John has been huge for me, especially in these past couple months, just in like kind of owning, you know, your agency and, and like owning how you want to, to show up for people um, mm-hmm. and, and making sure that you do it with a sort of a spirit of service. Yeah. So those would be my mentors for sure. What are you obsessed with right now? Ah, I'll say I'm absolutely, okay, this is a side thing. I'm absolutely obsessed with uh, kind of how the market is uh, sort of changing currently, like how it's kind of like peered into the uh, social conscious of millennials specifically. Like I'm seeing the stuff that's going on with like AMC and hedge funds and Citadel. And for whatever reason, that like really interests me. It's like this uh, sort of story of like fighting against the man and and government agencies and little people kind of like banding together. Outside of that, I'm really, really, really into vinyls. So like I'm copying like a different vinyl every other week. I'm like searching, going to different spaces. That probably consumes a, a lot of my time. Like I'm trying to look to see if I can um, get a new credenza soon. We were just talking about like getting rid of furniture. Like that's going to be a big purchase for me. I don't even know if it's like 350 anymore. We're probably approaching over 400. Wow. Yeah. I got you got, you got storage for it and everything? Nah, man. I, I don't even <laughs> Yeah. I had a credenza and I thought it'd be big enough. And then I filled it up. And then, so there's a, probably about like 150 of the vinyls that are either in a crate or they're on a shelf and i need to like create like a a storage space specifically for it but even past that i have to go home and probably grab like another five or six hundred yeah my dad like called me because i think it was like a little bit of a test they allowed me to go into the storage and grab my uncle's records because that's really why it's important to me like it's kind of twofold It serves as like this design inspiration. You look at these covers and like the sleeves and how they put everything together. It's kind of like a master master's class in design. Like you look at like some of the type, the color palettes, the photography, Mm -hmm. uh, and the composition. Like it boggles my brain. You don't know all the people who have like done these things. Some of these people are like hard to find. They're dead. You can have someone in present day who like can say like, oh, that was my great grandfather who did this, this cover for the spinners. Mm-hmm. Um, that's like really interesting to me because you're like actively like discovering things um, with a sense of duality, not only from like this perspective of looking at it as a creative, but then also musically, not just like discovering new sounds, but like. I am learning things about my family and my my uncle Candy specifically 
in terms of like his tastes. Mm. And I've never met the man. Almost like him and I are having a conversation through the music. And I can take that to my dad. Yeah. For me, it's been really good, especially uh, in contrast to what you get with streaming services. Because it's way more passive with streaming services. They like they serve it up to you. They give it to you and you just consume it. With vinyls, you have to be active. Like mm-hmm. you gotta look through it. Like you have to you have to touch it. You gotta look at those songs. You gotta look at that artist. And then you have to put it on the turntable. And then when once that side A is done, you gotta flip it over to that side B. And so there there have been fascinating things that have shown up in that vinyl collection. Like I got like an original test pressing of like a SNCC fundraiser concert. <laughs> yeah it's like it's wild i gotta figure out how to uh yeah i gotta figure out how to get that into the right hands because i feel like i shouldn't i personally shouldn't own it mm-hmm. i feel like it should be in like a museum somewhere but yeah it's a part of my family history and i want to keep it intact and sort of establish a library around it where i can give it to to my kids god willing i mean that something like that ends up being really like a family heirloom, but it's something that you keep continually adding to and diversifying and curating and everything. That sounds amazing. Mm-hmm. It's been a good sort of discussion starter or just like catalyst for like how I, I talk to different family members. Cause a lot of them have at some point in time come across this collection or have contributed to it in some way, shape, or form. Like even the the SNCC record that I have, which has like has like a speech from John C. Lewis on it. And like that original test pressing came by way of like my aunt's old boyfriend, because she like used to help him disseminate those those vinyls and and sell them for the fun reason. So like I can talk to her and then get the background and the story behind that. And then like also get like her other stories. She used to work for the Sean Brave Center. She used to be a part of Freedom Rides, um, sit-ins. Mm. Yeah. And and so like that's kind of what you know these vinyls have done for me. Like, all right, where we started, where it was like, all right, this is like a really, really interesting like piece. Where did this come from? And then all of a sudden I'm getting a story around like how it was made. And then all the experiences that are are connected to it. And now I'm learning more about my my aunt, Roberta. Hmm. Where do you want to see yourself in the next five years? Like, what kind of work do you want to be doing? I think in like the short term, I've kind of leaned more into like the visual side of design. And there is a like, there's a people focus in that, especially working for Amazon. Data is, is super key. But I kind of want to get more into the product side. Especially with what I, I'm seeing in a lot of the technology that's being created, there are inherent biases that that exist. And so when you're when you're designing, right, you have to design with with those problems in mind. Mm-hmm. And like if the room of designers that you have are are largely white, the same issues that exist within society and exist within the world are probably going to exist within that product. And so like I'm like, hey, like maybe we need to take a step back from visual design and get get more into product and, and user experience and um 
with that, get a get a better understanding of how people are interacting with the products and like how these systems are are set up, how we can decolonize those in a sense. And I have a lot of different thoughts about how we think about accessibility. Mm-hmm. All right. Traditionally, accessibility is like people who may be hard of hearing, people who may not be able body, but I also think that race may be a component of accessibility as well. And so I don't fully understand why we divorce those things. And so I I just kind of want to do more of a foray into that space mm-hmm. uh, so I can figure out how to set up structures that will be more encompassing of, of people who look like me. Well, just to wrap things up here, where can our audience find out more about you and your work and everything online? Yeah, so you can find me on Instagram at Maxwell Van Hook. Uh, you can also find me on Instagram as well at Designing Wild Black. Either of those, uh, feel free to follow me. Feel free to reach out to me also um, if you are looking to get in design, if you want to politic, or if you just kind of want to share your passion uh, about design and, and your experience. I, I'd love to connect with people. So. Sounds good. Well, Maxwell Van Hook, I want to thank you so much for one, for coming on the show, but two, I mean, I think it's, it's obvious from anyone that's listened up to this point that you bring such a, a deep level of passion and introspection to your work. Like you're a very thoughtful designer that really takes into a lot, takes a lot of considerations into account when it's not just about the work that you're doing, but also the impact that it's going to have on people and on communities and such. And I think this was just such a great interview, such a great introduction of you to the Revision Path audience. So thank you so much for coming on the show. I appreciate it. No, thank you for having me. Um, it was it was great actually being able to to kind of talk with you and um, yeah, meeting you. I, I feel like I've I've listened to you so much <laughs> over the years. Uh, finally uh, getting down. To, to talking with you is has been somewhat surreal. So thank you. Thank you for allowing me to share the space with you. Awesome. Big, big thanks to Maxwell Van Hook. And of course, thanks to you for listening. You can find out more about Maxwell and his work through the links in the show notes at revisionpath.com. And of course, thanks to our wonderful sponsor, Brevity and Wit. Brevity and Wit is a strategy and design firm committed to designing a more inclusive and equitable world. They accomplish this through graphic design, presentations, and workshops around IDEA, inclusion, diversity, equity, and accessibility. If you're curious to learn how to combine a passion for IDEA with design, check them out at brevityandwit.com. Brevity and Wit, creative excellence without the grind. Revision Path is brought to you by Lunch, a multidisciplinary creative studio in Atlanta, Georgia. This podcast is created, hosted, and produced by me, Maurice Cherry, with engineering and editing by RJ Basilio. Our intro voiceover is by Music Man Dre, with intro and outro music by Yellow Speaker. So what did you think of the interview? Better yet, what do you think about the podcast overall? Don't be a stranger. Hit us up on Twitter or Instagram. Just search for Revision Path, all one word. Or you can leave us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. Let everyone you know know about the show. It really helps us grow. And of course, it helps us reach more people all around the world. 
As always, thank you so much for listening and we'll see you next time.